Hello, listeners. Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast. This is Michael Wojcik, again, your host, and I'm joined again by Marie. As almost always you are. And we have a special guest today. Hi. Uh, Corey. Yes, my good friend Corey. Uh, today we are talking about Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny, which is a book that was published in, as I check the volume here, because I didn't do this beforehand, 1967, and it also won the Hugo Award for that year. Would one of you like to describe or give a brief overview of Lord of Light for people who aren't familiar with it? Okay, basic premise of the book is a group of colonists leaves Earth. If I'm remembering correctly, it's either destroyed or left ambiguous. And they find this new planet to settle. And when they get there, it's inhabited by aliens, these kind of beings that are mostly energy and consciousness, and they refer to them as demons. So the humans alter their own physiology. They used uh, to give themselves essentially magical powers. I mean, science did it, but it's the same thing in this case. Um, and they also have technology to reinsert their own consciousness into a new body. So that's the background. And from there, they establish themselves as the gods of the Hindu pantheon. Um, so there's Shiva, there's Vishnu, um, Agni, the god of fire, that kind of thing. And they're using it to basically rule the planet with an iron fist. They're preventing human civilization. Their descendants are all left at a point of technological stagnation that reflects the Middle Ages. Out of this, one of the original settlers, who's, who goes by the name Sam, um, basically decides that this is wrong and he's going to resist this and try to bring about you know, modernization, accelerate people to the point of technology. One of the many methods he uses of doing this, like there's a bunch of stuff in the book, there's epic battles, he makes deals with demons, he also establishes himself as the Buddha at one point. Which you know, is hilarious. It is, because um, he's a total shyster and he's playing Buddha basically. And that's where the title actually comes from, because he's the Lord of Lights. And this is just one of many facets of an approach he uses to try to weaken the grip, this iron grip of these self-appointed gods. And the book just follows his stories as he resists them. Or as I'd like to put it in a much more succinct version, Space Hindu Gods. Yeah, basically. I think most of Sam's character can really just be summed up by the first line of the book, which is his followers called him Mahasamatman and said he was a god. He preferred to drop the Maha and the Atman, however, and called himself Sam. Yes. You've got to read the next line, too, actually. He never claimed to be a god, but then he never claimed not to be a god. Ah, yes. Uh, yes. There is a great deal of that kind of wordplay just kind of inserted at random points within the novel, but I think my favorite one comes... Uh, about one-fourth of the way through with this just beautiful line, then the fit hit the shan. We <laughs> 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 pause for quite a few more. Pause and laugh. Laugh yeah. silently. <laughs> I think um, one thing to remember about the book, and I think this is reflected a lot in the wordplay, is Sam is kind of a trickster figure. He's a lot like to make another mythology comparison, he's a lot like Loki, except not a bad guy. Still a bastard, he's just the hero. Mm-hmm. In this case, because the people that he's opposing are far worse than he is. Yeah. But at the same time, he's kind of aware of that fact. Mm-hmm. 
So I guess for some added background, there was a conflict earlier on between a segment of the original settlers called the Accelerationists, and mm -hmm. then I'm not sure if the other faction really has another name except that they live in heaven and want yeah. to prevent the descendants of settlers, obviously, from ascending to a level of technological sophistication where they could possibly overthrow these people living in their space heaven. Keep them in the dark, as it were. Yeah. See, I'm so good at short, at short trait phrases. <laughs> bah. The accelerationists believe that technology should be shared among everyone, and they periodically try to pass on the knowledge from heaven to the people living on the ground of this not-Earth. But we'll just call it Earth. It results in a lot of death, so... Yes, well... One of the major set-piece battles, and yes, this is a spoiler, but it's also something that's happened repeatedly in the past in the novel, too, is that one city does have a kind of scientific revolution. And when that happens in this world, the gods will come down, uh, gather an army of fanatics behind them, and basically crush these cities if they go beyond the state where it's acceptable to have the technology that they have. Well, I think part of it, too, is, I mean, this is a science fiction story, but they're very much gods in the old Greek sense, where they very much exist in this world, they very much influence this world, and if this world pisses them off, they're not at all hesitant to smack it down. What's so specifically Greek about that? Nothing, but that's a classic example. Along that note, I do find it interesting that the closest thing the book has to a flat-out actual evil character is the Christian character. Basically, you got Death Lord, as far as I can tell. Nerity like, the Black or something like that. He has he, an um, army of zombies. And yes. he forces them to kneel and pray, pray, in quotes, with him, because... He considers this whole Hinduism thing blasphemy because he was actually the chaplain of the original colonists. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this case, to say that they are gods, that's because they have made themselves gods. And this is very much a science fantasy novel, insofar mm -hmm. as you have spaceships and so on, but there is this band of energy, or this cloud of energy around the planet. The original inhabitants called the Rakasha, but the gods call them demons, the settlers call them demons, have been able to move beyond their bodies. The most advanced species of the planet is definitely not winning out in the war for supremacy over it. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need bodies anymore. Oh shit, these people who use them are totally kicking our asses. Well, the reason they kicked their asses though is they gave, the humans gave themselves abilities that were, were basically able to affect one while still living in the other. Mm -hmm. So they could affect the energy while being physical. They didn't need to give up physical bodies to use the energy. Mm -hmm. Although that band of energy is very convenient for, uh, Oh, I'm not going to say spoiler alert. People should know by now that when you're doing a <laughs> every every one of these podcasts has been a giant spoiler. I think yeah, there's a very convenient moment when you know Sam dies for real and he just manages to survive in the band of energy. Well, I, I'd also so like very to, useful. I'd also like to point out the book came out over 40 years ago. You can't really bitch about spoilers for something that old. So they pick up on, it's treated as a technology of what the Rakasha were able to do, and they apply this technology to transferring their own consciousnesses to new bodies. And the gods build up this place in heaven. 
the original colonists, I think they could all transfer their bodies once they had figured this out. And then later on, they institute the idea of karma, and you have oh. to go to these karma places. I forget what they're called. Yeah, <laughs> it was discussed early how any of the original colonists, when they needed a new body, could simply go and get one. And then as a way of introducing more control, and especially controlling their descendants and rebels amongst the first, they made it where you needed to pass, or you needed to be scanned, and if you were judged worthy, you'd be given a new body, and if you weren't judged worthy, you'd either be allowed to die, or you'd be given a body that was very heavily flawed, in case in point, you'd be riddled with disease, or be old, or infirm, or something. Or Or an orangutan. Or an orangutan, yeah. Um, Obviously... This is an incredibly arbitrary process left solely at the discretion of the people in power. So, I think the interesting thing in this book is that with people who are able to reincarnate like that, they're still able to make new people as well. And I sort of like the question of where exactly is the spirit coming from? An mm. interesting one that's played with throughout the entire story. And it's really sort of answered that. Well, it's not really an answer, but that whole when Sam does go into the band of energy, that's the closest we get to an answer for that. I think another character that adds interest to that is a character by the name of Tack. And Tack has gone through several bodies as of all of them, but his original body was fathered by a body that was being inhabited by Sam. So at one point, Sam was his biological father, but because they change bodies, the biology of the body changes, they don't have a genetic link anymore. But Tack still kind of has a bit of a hero father worship for Sam simply because he created him in a sense. Mm-hmm. Is Tack the archivist? Tack is the archivist, yeah. So he's not even the same species anymore by the time this novel opens. Yeah, well, when the novel opens, um, because of stuff he'd done, he's punished by being stuck in a monkey's body. I have to wonder if you could correlate the dates of when this was published and when the Discworld novels were published. No, I thought of that myself. But, <laughs> Whether this was the inspiration behind the librarian. I think orang- or- orangutan is just a very kind of useful body shape for a lot of things. Um, what I think is always more interesting is the gender play with, I think it's Brahma, isn't it? She yeah. Was yeah. A- Brahma was a woman and re- I guess they have a pantheon of gods, but you can become a different god. And yeah. People get knocked out of the pantheon if they. Yeah. Just please. Yeah. There was there's the funny bit where she's um, still the caller. She even though she picks up the most hyper masculine body she can, I think she's in her own garden, and yet she just can't get the ladies as much as somebody who kind of as as has a naturally masculine spirit kind of, sort of was biologically male initially. Thing, but that, that was an interesting statement on um gender. Well, that's in one scene. Sam basically pisses off Brahma, He's like good constantly at that. <laughs> drawing attention to this. He's very good at pushing all of the god buttons. Well, Sam, in a way, is kind of the smartest and strongest of them. It's just on his own, he's not strong enough to take them all. It's not until he's joined by the other extremely interesting character here, Yama. <laughs> Yama, <laughs> Lord of Death that he's able to gather the forces necessary to succeed in his quest to take down the gods. Yama Yama is a really interesting character in a lot of respects because his role is the god of death. He's frequently described as basically being the best warrior in this entire universe. Like, nobody can touch him with a sword. 
And at the same time, he's also this brilliant, for lack of a better term, artificer. He creates all the crazy technology. He builds all insane machines that can shatter the world, that kind of thing. So here you've got this guy who can create things, but they're always incredibly destructive. I think it's a good segue to talk about the aspect thing, actually. Mm. Because all the um, beings who are these Hindu-esque gods have an ability to take on a more mystical than scientific power called an aspect, which is never really described. But Yamas is the most concrete in that he looks at somebody and it kills them. Or try, attempts to kill yes, them. Yes, strong enough figures in this universe can resist it, but weak figures like a normal human guy get killed instantly. But anybody, any of these Hindu gods can take on an aspect, which basically just they sort of become more their power, as far as I can tell. Yeah, they need to take on an aspect and an attribute. I think it's like aspect is going into the state where you can access the power, and the attribute is the power itself, it seems. Yeah. Which was interesting, because they could have to have one of these things. Yeah, it... um. A couple characters manage to have a few different abilities, but that's largely augmented by the equipment or the weapon they're carrying or something. And a lot of these are designed to complement their current ability, but they're still technologically granted. They're not part of the character. Because is it Lord Agni? Yep. Yes. The, well, I guess it's a nuclear wand, essentially. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure what else you could call it. It gets that thing's on fire. Well, no, points of things and they get vaporized, so it's not even fire at that point. Yeah. It's beyond fire. And as said earlier, these gods can change positions and therefore change their aspects and their attributes. Although it's interesting that they've all sort of picked the, um, particular, that they've all kind of fallen in, into, into the default of the, of basically the Hindu story, the paradigm versus creating like, various other types of gods and things. Mm -hmm. So I almost wonder if maybe they were lazy in their story making just to, because they wanted power and didn't so much want to create an interesting thing to live in. Yes, there is nothing preventing the settlers from taking on any kind of power or aspect that they want. They just happen to choose this particular pantheon. Which is something and that I never felt was explained fully, was why they went this specifically Hindu route. Except for the one dude who rejects them because he's Christian and yeah. comes out Dracula, basically. <laughs> I think, um, I, I think we rest out. I think the Hindu route kind of suits with the society they try to establish, though. Um, obviously, I think you can look at this as these particular humans have very much corrupted what the Hinduism is supposed to be, but they've got karma. So they've got an idea of reciprocation. They've got the idea of the gods having power. I think they, basically the way I look at it, it was a, it's a particular form of belief or story that already has the machinery they need, and it was just much easier to corrupt the existing machinery than it was to create their own. I suppose the big thing is the reincarnation. Yeah. Honest, that's that, that decision. Yeah, I think that's where I largely see it coming through as well, because... You want reincarnation, you want a way to basically dictate on a whim who can and can't be reincarnated, so you just make up the, you just use the excuse of karma. Mm -hmm. They also institute a heavy case system, though I'm not sure if that comes from... Um, that is part of Hindu culture, that's... Yes, I'm not sure in the book if it comes from the choice of pantheon that they have, or if they just want to institute. 
an uh, easy way to control the population in that case. I'd almost say the control. Yeah. I the, think everything's about control. Everything is done for control. Like, none of the things the gods do are accidental or because it just kind of worked. It's always to give them some kind of advantage. But by choosing the Hindu pantheon, they also basically leave open the key to their own destruction. <laughs> okay, in what sense? Buddhism. I can see that going several ways. Buddhism. <laughs> Which is the most greatest joke of the whole story, is that it's this Buddhist character. He's not really Buddhist, but the guy who uses Buddhism as a trope to attack Hinduism, which I thought was hilarious. (laughs) Which is kind of funny, too, because Buddhism doesn't really necessarily contradict Hinduism. and Neither does Buddhism historically do this to Hinduism. Exactly. No. (laughs) But, um... Yes. I should, we should clarify that we are not making comments on modern Buddhists or Hinduists. Hinduists. Hindus. Hindus, thank Hindus. you. We're not making comments on modern Buddhists or Hindus. It is about this book that we are speaking. No insults meant, meant to people. <laughs> but, um, Specifically I, the representation that Roger Zelazny has of these religions in the novel as opposed to our own knowledge and the real world implications and beliefs of these particular religions. Mm-hmm. Disclaimer over. Well, I think just to follow up on what Marie said, um, there's a part where, again, spoiler, Sam gets captured, and the gods are discussing ways to deal with what, for them, is now the issue of Buddhism. And what they actually decide to do is that they're going to claim one of their members was disguising as Buddha to teach humans another way so that they could avoid reincarnation if they wanted. Basically... Yeah, that is also a sign of their non-creativity because this is exactly what happened what? <laughs> historically that the Buddha was considered a reincarnation of, I believe, Vishnu. That might have been in some schools. That might not have been applied across all forms of... Uh... Yes, no, but it was definitely y- there. Oh, I don't doubt it. I'm just... Yes, Bori has the expertise of having read the Oxford very short introduction to Hinduism. <laughs> I think Which is that. an excellent series, by the way. It's yes. a phenomenal series. We should do a podcast on how wonderful they are. <laughs> Moving on. Okay, I've heard from several podcasts and reviews of this book that many people consider the structure and it confusing. Yep. I had no problem with it. What about you guys? Um, I was thrown for a bit of a loop after reading the first chapter, and then getting into the second. It's like, okay, I knew it was going into a flashback because of the way the first chapter ends, but the second chapter picked up in a bit of a weird spot, but by the end of it, no, I, I was, by the end of that chapter, I was fine. It's sort of difficult for me to say, because Corey said, by the way, everything after the first chapter is a flashback when I read it, so I can't really tell you what it would have been naturally, but I don't really think so as being difficult to read. Because in front of the first chapter, you're kind of like, I don't know what's going on. And the second chapter, you're like, I still don't really know what's going on. And so you just keep reading, and then eventually you're like, oh, I see what's going on, and it all comes together. So. I yeah. would say that the signposts that this is a science fiction novel and they're on another planet start quite early when mm-hmm. you have people smoking cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, well, the signposts are definitely there, and I think that was very much intentional on Zelazny's part, just to give you that little clue. But then the cigarettes are kind of an interesting one, because you can tell it's a 60s novel because everyone smokes all the time. That is just what they do. And the funny thing is, it's only the gods. 
if I'm remembering correctly, you don't see the humans smoking. It's just this old habit the gods have. Oh, the gods and the first settlers smoke, but the actual people who are just toiling along and don't know what's going on, don't. Plus, they're not allowed to play rock music. So. <laughs> what's really funny about that is that since they're, um, well, since they're the gods, they can reincarnate as much as they want, so they could take let their cancerous bodies just fall apart. So well, yeah. I forget the exact wording, but... Um, Sam describes them at one point in much more articulate language as being a group of heathists, which they basically are. I mean, you burn one body out with drugs and alcohol, you start a new one and do it all over again. Well, they basically don't do much in heaven. It's pretty bored. Most of the time is spent scheming to backstab each other, it seems, yeah. Which is sort of a special place for gods to be. Which is a very sort of funny thing, actually. Well, it's kind of interesting because Sam gives them a unifying target and that he gives them a single enemy to focus on. And yet having that unity is ultimately what leads to their fall. What is sort of strange about the reincarnation process, this is coming completely uh, off topic of what we were talking about before, but whatever. The reincarnation process here, they do bring people into heaven if they've been good people. Mm-hmm. As in, the gods have decided that, oh yeah, we like these people. There's mm-hmm. one point where there's a girl who's up there, and it's because one of the gods had liked how she looked before. Mm-hmm. But obviously because she's moved over bodies, it's rather hard to justify what happened in that case. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think it's that's very telling, though, and I think that was a very intentional part. Oh, yeah, that definitely was intentional to show how arbitrary and how uh, mm. screwed up this system is, that the only real thing behind the brain scan is that they didn't go against, didn't have thoughts against the gods at any point in their lives. Yes. It's just a way of making sure you're not overtly a rebel. Yeah. And then once they establish that you're not planning on rebelling, it's like, oh, okay, well, you're kind of sexy, come join us. <laughs> I think there was one point where the Lasley might have gone a bit too far with making his point about just how ignorant the people on the floor were. When that one city was having a scientific revolution and the one man was going to get a toilet, and he Uh, decided to keep all his feces in the house until he got the toilet. Yeah. That was a bit much. <laughs> it's like very few people. It's such an, yeah, it's such an obvious comedy scene, but you got to read it. And go, why is this even in? That yeah, I, I think that seemed a little out of place, but it was still kind of funny. I know that George R. R. Martin and several other authors have called this the best science fiction novel they've ever read. I wouldn't call it that, even though I did enjoy it very much. I call it a good novel. It's not the best science fiction novel I've ever read. I would agree that not necessarily the best. I would say it's top ten for me, though. Zelazny has written a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the only thing of his I've read. So. I've read one short story aside from this. It's kind of to the point where you're not sure where to begin. This is usually the book people would point you to if you were going to read Zelazny. It's the old problem of science fiction writers in the 60s in that if you wanted to make a living off of it, you had to write a lot. So your point is that they also had to write a lot of crap. Yeah, so they would write a lot of crap. A lot. And Roger Zelazny wrote a lot of crap. And that's just going by the titles and book descriptions. 
And that's this true for Ellison and Bradbury. So mm-hmm. there you go. <laughs> well, uh, along the lines of um, the best science fiction novel ever, I've often heard that title ascribed to Dune by Frank Herbert. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the uh, world building is far deeper in Dune. <laughs> is um, but I. I do think the two touch on a few similar themes. I think Dune has a lot more you could talk about, but I think the ideas of religion are central to both books. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's kind of ambiguous what Zelazny is trying to say on that, because these people are still people yeah. who have constructed or made a religion real, but they're still people ruling over it. So they end up screwing it up regardless. Yeah. I think, um... And yet they screw it up as gods screw things up. Yes. <laughs> That's a comment there. <laughs> it doesn't come across as a dir- Roger Zelazny trying to make any sort of direct commentary on Hinduism, is what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> yes. No, I, I think... I think another way to look at that, too, is, um... We talked about accelerationism as a theme in the book... And I think you can actually move beyond what actually happens for themes. I think, keeping in mind that this was written in the 60s, the Cold War, the space race, the arms race, I think the space race is a good one here. You've got two governments hoarding technology, and that's hurting everybody, ultimately. I mean, okay, this would be, obviously, this would be a very backward approach, but you could look at it as a vague comment, at least partially, on that. Yeah, that works for me. Mm, Yeah. I think what I like about Lord of Light is just the main character. I like how creative he is. I like how mischievous he is. And he's not a bad person. He's just not a good one. So I think for me, a large part of the appeal is the character, especially that kind of character in a world that is so filled with magic, even if it is science fiction. I I don't think I would read it again, but I did enjoy it when I was reading it, especially the last third Mm-hmm, when it picks up a lot more. Yeah. Although I think Corey's right is that it is the, it is a character driven s- story. I don't, but if I would say I'm not, I don't mean in the modernist sense of you learn a lot about a character. I mean it is like a plot story, but it is the character that drives it and you're interested in what happens to him. Yeah, I was going to say it's character driven in the sense of it's one character's goals and decisions drive the plot. It just happens that in this case they change an entire world, because again, sci-fi, but there is a very heavy character element to it. It is kind of nice to watch, and um, I feel that we're almost getting back to the Terry Pratchett to, 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 to look on uh, history-making in a very in a very serious kind of way. Well, actually, I think I'm going with the character thing. I think that's actually an interesting thought. I really don't think it would have worked without Sam. Like, no, nothing would have happened. Well, A, certainly not. A, nothing would happen. B, this world, I think, only works, like, literally, the world of this novel only works because someone's resisting it. I think if it had just been, here's this world, let's have an adventure in it, I don't think it would have worked as well. I think this is the kind of world that can only exist to be torn down, because it doesn't work any other way. Ah, whereas, like, in 1984, you can totally believe that world exactly. continuing forever. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you can't really see the world of Lord of Light going on forever, can you? I suppose, yeah, that's actually is the interesting thing is that when you start reading this book, you're like, this is just a, this is just a tinderbox that's going to go up really fast, and I kind of want to see the pretty lights. Yeah. <laughs> you very much get the impression that this has to end. Not that it's going to, but it has to. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. yeah. 
And with that, I think we have thoroughly gone over this book. <laughs> Final comments on Lord of Light? Oh, you guys turn. Um, uh, yeah, read it. It's a good one. I have nothing to say beyond, yeah, I wouldn't read it again, but it's worth reading once. Um, I, I have read it more than once. Um, I think I would read it again. I made the mistake of reading it too close together. I think it is a book you need a long time between rereading. And with that, we finish our podcast. So thank you two for joining me. Thanks for having us on. Yes, thank you. All right. And bye, listeners. We will, or you will hear us next time.